Well, I invite and encourage all of you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. And if you need a Bible, that's why these guys have come to the front. They're going to make their way to the back with the stack of Bibles they have. If you need one, then get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. That's marked for you at our passage, 1 Thessalonians 5. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We sometimes speak of someone being in full-time ministry or sometimes say he's in the ministry. But if we're not careful, those phrases can create a false impression. Because the word ministry simply means service. Therefore, to say that only some are in full-time service or in the ministry can imply that there are part-time Christians who are not in the service of the Lord. And this, despite the fact that one of the key teachings of the Protestant Reformation was something called the priesthood of every believer that broke down the absolute distinction between clergy and laity. However, common practice in today's church often effectively ignores this truth. A false dichotomy between ministers and congregations is maintained by many. But the Bible teaches that although we have different functions in God's service, we are all in the ministry. My dear mother, now with the Lord, maintained this false teaching all her life in service to her delight that I'm a pastor. She used to love to tell people that her son is, quote, a minister. She had introduced me to everybody. Everybody. Kenny, you need to meet this person. Mom, that person doesn't want to meet me. No. She was convinced everyone wants to meet me because I'm a minister. And she had introduced me to everybody, proudly informing them that he's in the ministry. Today we're going to see that God has called all of us, in fact, into the ministry. Now, for the last two messages in our series in the book of First Thessalonians, the passages are focused on the future. The end of chapter 4 dealt with the rapture of the church. And the first 11 verses of chapter 5 we saw last week deal with the future day of the Lord's judgment during the tribulation period that follows the rapture. But in today's passage, Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, returns to the present and how we're to live in the here and now. That's because Paul did not want us to have our head in the clouds and neglect our responsibilities. Rather, as we look forward to the future deliverance and home with the Lord that we're going to have, we need to remember that that home will include each of us together. Each of us together. Just think about that. Does that delight you or fill you with dread? If we belong to the Lord, we're going to be together forever. In fact, at the end of the passage on the rapture, In the last verse of chapter 4, he says, encourage one another with these words. And at the end of last week's passage on the day of the Lord, he said in verse 11 of chapter 5, encourage one another and build build each other up. That reminds us that since we're going to be together forever, we should start practicing now. He's saying we should minister to one another, we should serve one another Because you're all in the ministry to each other right now. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at that truth. Our Father, we thank you that we're here. We're here by your appointment. 
We're here by your grace. Because it's your grace that's instilled with us a desire to be with your people, to sing praise to you, to look into the mirror of your word, to see your character extolled there, to see ourselves there, and what needs to change in order to close the gap between you, who you are and who we are. You've given us that desire. You've given us the ability to be here. And so, Lord, we thank you that we're now together with your word open before us. We ask you, Lord, to instruct us then and help us with open hearts and attentive minds to learn your truth and apply it so that we can better serve you this coming week. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this call to ministry that we all have to one another can be a real pain. Because we can be real pains. And the truth of the matter is, our church would be perfect if it weren't for people. But the truth is, the church is a society of sinners. The first requirement for joining is that you recognize you're unworthy. We know all of that, but... If we're honest, we sometimes wish we could just pick the people that we want to be around or just don't really associate with anyone in the church, outside of church, because it's safer. Relationships get messy, so why chance it? And that's the approach that many Christian people take. That's the approach that some of you take. I show up at church, I leave, but I don't get involved in the lives of of these people. It's impossible for you. Impossible. You're going to see it today. You see it throughout the New Testament. Impossible for you to obey many dozens of commands of the New Testament without being willing to get your hands dirty in the mess that is relationships. When we think of people, the truth is we can't live with them. And we feel like we can't minister. We can't serve we know we can't minister and we can't serve without them. It's one thing to look forward to being one another with one another in eternity when we're all perfect. It's quite another to deal with one another now. And so one has said to dwell above with saints we love, well, that will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. So we need to ask ourselves, do we see one another as an obstacle or an opportunity? The fact is, we can't mature unless we show the love that we are called to demonstrate to one another as we live with one another in our relationships. Though we're all in the ministry, though we're all called to serve the Lord by serving one another, there are different ways in which we do that. There are, even though there's no absolute distinction between between clergy and laity, there are pastors and there's God's people and each serves the other and the entire congregation is to serve minister to one another and so that's why we have inserted in your program this week's outline as we do every week if you don't have that out as yet I encourage you to take a look at that I say first of all there that pastors and people must minister that is must serve one another we minister to one another Pastors minister, first of all, to God's people. Verse 12 of chapter 5. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and admonish you. 
So this is speaking of those who are the leaders in the church, those who are shepherding the church, the pastors. And it's saying, brothers and sisters, acknowledge those who work hard among you and do some other things listed there. So I say, first of all, in the outline, that pastors should serve God's people. Pastors should serve God's people. I say serve because the word that's translated work in verse 12 is one that means to sweat and toil to the point of exhaustion. There's another Greek word. Most of you know that your New Testament was first written in Greek and it's translated for us into English. And there's another Greek word often used for work, but it's a general term and it refers to work of any kind, whether work that's easy or difficult. But the word here in verse 12 refers to difficult, wearisome work. So what is it that makes the work of a pastor so difficult? Well, there's just the sheer volume of what needs to be done. There's counsel, there's administration, there's planning. But the most important is the ministry of prayer and the word. And any good pastor will spend many hours each week in those tasks. And then beyond that, it's not a job, it's a calling. And therefore, it's not something you punch in and out of and you can leave at the office. Verse 12 says that this work to which those who lead in the congregation are to devote themselves is to be, verse 12, among you. That means for those of us that are in pastoral ministry, we need to understand that there's a difference between preaching and pastoring. Preaching is one very important thing that the pastor does. But pastoring, shepherding, requires that you're around the sheep. As a matter of fact, the better you know the sheep, the more effective your preaching will be to those sheep. I heard a guy say of his pastor, he teaches the word and he smells like sheep. There are guys who want a pastoral role because, in effect, they want to be conference speakers and the church is their means to pay their salary to do it. They look forward to when they're not actually at their church. That happens from time to time. Next month I'll be at a place in Tennessee It happens from time to time, but the truth is a shepherd's work is with the sheep, among the sheep, in the church. Now, a corollary to all of that for you, friends, is that the radio or TV preacher is not your pastor. They don't know you. They're not going to come and visit you when you're in the hospital. They're not going to bury you when you die. They're not going to marry your children. They won't be around. They're not your pastor. So pastors are to serve God's people. In your outline, I say as well, pastors should lead God's people. Should serve and lead. Pastors should lead God's people. Again, verse 12. Brothers and sisters, acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord. Now that phrase, who care for you in the Lord, is translated elsewhere as who are over you in the Lord, or who have who have charge over you in the Lord. So pastors are to stand before the congregation in order to lead it. And so one title for a pastor in the New Testament is the title overseer. For those who are leaders in the church, we most often say pastor. That's the title that most, if not all of you, use for me. Pastor, for Pastor Larry, for Pastor Rich. But there are a couple of other titles that are used interchangeably. 
with uh, that of pastor. They refer to the same person, but different aspects of the same of, of the responsibility. For example, in Acts chapter 20, Paul, who had been for three years in the city of Ephesus, at the end of his time there, he called for the elders to meet with him. It says Paul sent for the elders of the church. And then as he spoke to those people called elders, he said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So these elders are overseers. And then he says, be shepherds, that is the word for pastoring, be pastors of the church of God. So you see there he's talking to the very same people and they are called elders, overseers, and pastors, terms that are interchangeable. Now the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says to the elders, I write, and then he says, be shepherds, that is, be pastors of God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers. So overseer is a term, another term for pastor, title for pastor. It's a word that means to stand before, to stand at the head of. In fact, in the second century of the church, the one who gave the sermon was called the president. So I've mentioned that in the past. You can call me Pastor Ken. You can call me President Ken. If you... And pastors in Scripture are said to direct the affairs of the church. Again, that's because of that overseeing responsibility. Direct the affairs of the church. And then in doing that, they have authority to which God's people submit. First Timothy 5, Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, elders, pastors, Overseers direct the affairs of the church. The writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, let me quickly add with regard to this idea of authority. Of course, authority can be abused. And so the realm of the pastor's authority is defined and restricted. In 1 Timothy 5.17 that we showed on the screen a moment ago, it says they direct the affairs of the church. In our passage in verse 12, it says they care for you or they are over you in the Lord. So it's the affairs of the church and in the Lord. That means pastors do not have authority outside the work of the Lord and the parameters of his word. And so we can't, and any good pastor wouldn't want, to dictate personal decisions that do not impact the work of the church. Pastors should serve God's people, lead God's people, and then I say in your outline, feed God's people. Feed. Again, verse 12. They care for you in the Lord and admonish you. That word admonish is sometimes translated counsel or instruct, or as we're going to see in verse 14, sometimes translated as warn. And the pastor's admonition, his counsel, his encouragement, his warning are all from the word of God. So it's the word of God that the shepherd is to feed the sheep. That's why one of the professional qualifications for the pastor, I say professional qualifications, there are personal qualifications, character qualifications. The two lists given to us in Scripture in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 are almost entirely about those personal character qualifications, but there are a couple professional qualifications as well. And one of those is that the pastor be able to teach. 
First Timothy 2 says an overseer, pastor, elder must be above reproach. He must be able to teach. And then 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must be, again, able to teach. Whole sermons could be preached on each of those responsibilities of serving, of leading and feeding. But for sake of time, we're going to move on in our passage in just a moment. As I was studying this, putting this together, I couldn't have helped be reminded of kind of a side story that happened to me several years ago at our prior church at which I was on staff. And our children's church volunteers, Tim and Sheila Robinson, who were at that church with us, and many of you know they do that same ministry here for us now, these many years later. But they were doing children's church ministry then. And they asked me one Sunday to come in and tell the kids what a pastor does. I'm not good at kind of getting down on kids' level, but I tried. And so I thought, I'm going to tell them that pastors are shepherds, flock is sheep, the flock are sheep, and they lead and they feed. So I go in to talk to the kids and I say, pastors are shepherds, the flock are sheep, you all are familiar with sheep, and a little kid on the front row starts baaing. <laughs> bah! The whole group started baaing. We never did get control of them again. (laughs) Tim Robinson was in the back laughing the whole time and did not lift a finger to help me. Paul, if you start buying. So we'll move on, but I'll only add that I'm grateful for a congregation that seeks to share the load of ministry and thereby not make the already full plate impossible to handle. I'm thankful for this congregation and its appreciation for the work of the pastorate, shown in many, many ways. I know I speak for pastors Rich and Larry when I say that as well. And I'm glad that we can honestly express that because our passage says it should be that way. So I say in your outline, pastors minister to God's people, but God's people minister to pastors. Verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. That means a couple of things. The first of which is this. They should appreciate their pastors. Appreciate. Back in verse 12, when it says acknowledge those who work hard among you, that word acknowledge is sometimes translated respect. It's from a Greek word that has the idea of intimate knowledge of a person that results in respect because of what you know about them, because of what you know about their character and their work. And that's why Scripture has these qualifications for church leaders, because they're to be of exemplary character. It's true of pastors, but it's also true of deacons as well. Unfortunately, we take this much too lightly in our churches. Not our church, but in our churches. And friends, I I am thankful. I am thankful every time I sit around the table as I did yesterday morning with the leaders that God has given us from our church, our pastors and and our deacons. God's people should appreciate their pastors and they should esteem, I say in the outline, esteem even their pastors. Because verse 13 says, hold them in the highest regard. Some translations say, esteem them highly. It's a phrase that means beyond all measure, 
And so there should be, Paul is saying here, no shortage of esteem for the pastor. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly. It's embarrassing to say this stuff because it's about what you guys are supposed to do for me, Pastor Larry, Pastor Rich. But I can't skip passages. This is what the Bible says. And so the question then is, how do you do this? How do you appreciate and esteem the pastor? Well, notice the reason for that. In verse 13, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. And the work of the pastors is the work of the word of God, of prayer and of oversight of God's church. And so in order to fulfill what this is saying, then ask yourself, do you appreciate and esteem that work? If so, it won't be hard to appreciate and esteem those who give themselves to it. You best show that in the way most of you already do. By eagerly listening to and applying the word to your lives, but also by serving the church so that we can devote ourselves to these priority ministries of prayer and the word. The mutual responsibility of pastors and people is summarized at the end of verse 13. Live in peace with each other. Peace is the tranquility and contentment that comes when things are in their proper order. When they're in their proper place, it results from obedience to these previous commands. If pastors fail to carry out their responsibilities to the church or the church fails to carry out its responsibilities to pastors, it results in disharmony and the work of the Lord is stymied. I can't tell you how many times I have seen this happen in churches because one or the other or both of those has happened. Friends, peace is not automatic in a fallen world. We must be ever vigilant to maintain it. And so we've seen the relationship and mutual responsibilities of pastor, pastors and congregation. But now in verses 14 and 15, we're given instruction on how to serve each other within the congregation. And I want you to please note as we read verse 14 that all of us are to serve in this regard because the final two verses are addressed to all of us in the entire congregation. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. In verse 14, we're going to be given instruction on how to counsel people in different conditions, and all of us are told to do that. When it says warn those, That's a word that's sometimes translated. We've already saw it earlier. It's sometimes translated admonish, encourage. It can be translated counsel. Counsel those who are idle and disruptive. So here we're given instruction to counsel people in different conditions. And all of us are told to do that. And you may wonder, how can you do so? After all, most of us are not professional counselors. Now hear this. This is talking about informal counsel within the congregation, one to another. And the Bible teaches that if you know the word of God and you love your brothers and sisters, you can administer that kind of counsel. Romans chapter 15. Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians, wrote this. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to, competent, able to, instruct, That's the same word for warn in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 5. 
A word sometimes translated counsel, warn, admonish. You're competent to counsel, warn, admonish one another. Colossians chapter 3, the same Paul wrote, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and, there it is again, admonish one another with all wisdom. So in your outline I say pastors and God's people minister to one another. Secondly, God's people must minister to each other. In verse 14, we're given three, some say four, categories of people that are always in the church and to whom we need to minister differently depending on their need. Each condition requires a different type of care. So I say in the outline, we have to minister to certain types of people. We minister to certain types of people. Verse 14 says one of those types, one of those categories is those who are idle and disruptive. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Now the two words, idle and disruptive. They're a translation of one Greek word that means to be out of line or out of step because you're not following orders. You're not keeping rules. And in the church at Thessalonica, to whom that letter was first written, there was a particular group that was disorderly. They were not following the rules. It was those who were idle. And so it's why he's saying, in your context, in this church, warn those who are idle and as a result of their idleness are being disruptive to the harmony of the church. These people in the church at Thessalonica were loafers who failed to carry out their duty to support themselves and their families and so were a burden to the church. And Paul had already commanded them. We saw it a few weeks ago back in chapter 4. Back in chapter 4 and verse 11. Work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the same group then that he's referring to. And by the time he wrote his second letter to the Thessalonians, you know, you have 1 Thessalonians, you've got 2 Thessalonians. By the time he wrote the second letter, he had to say this. We command you, brothers and sisters, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. So he's saying, warn those people in the first letter. And now in the second letter, he's saying, keep away from these people who, presumably having been warned, He had previously instructed, now we're continuing on this path, keep away from those who claim the name of Christ, but who are idle and disruptive and do not live according to the teaching you received from us. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now notice, if he will not work, it's not if he cannot work, which are completely different. And so what do you do with a person who's in open sin? That's what we're talking about here. Idle and disruptive, they're in open and obvious sin. What do you do? And the Bible says here, you warn them. That's that same word that we saw in Romans fifteen fourteen. That's translated instruct in Colossians three sixteen. Translated admonish. It's sometimes translated counsel. Here it's translated warn. It's a Greek word, nuthateo. And in putting all the passages together in which that word nuthateo is used, you can arrive at a biblical definition of what it means to admonish, to counsel, warn. Here it is. It means a loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Now notice confrontation, that scares us. But notice what kind of confrontation. Not a hostile confrontation with the truth. 
a loving confrontation with the truth. It's a brother or sister going to a brother and sister and saying, listen, you're going in the wrong direction. This is what God's word says. And this is what you're doing. I love you. I love the Lord. I want to see this fixed. And so I'm calling you to do that. And if I can't help you with that, then let's get you with someone who can help you with that. Or maybe it's just a matter of you knowing what to do, confessing that, repenting, and moving in the right direction. The Bible teaches, friends, when we see your brother or sister's sin, it's our obligation for their sake to go to them and call them to repentance. I'm going to give you some passages that show that very clearly. But this presupposes that you have a relationship with that person. So don't be this guy or gal who doesn't have relationships with people. You just go around watching people. And then when you see something that's out of line, you go up and introduce yourself and then say, you know, I'm God's bodyguard and bouncer. And this is what you're doing, and it's wrong, and here's what the Bible says. No, this all presupposes that we have a relationship with each other, which is, going back to the beginning, one of the reasons that many of you just stop not to have them. Because it's hard. Because it gets messy. When we have relationships with each other, we see each other's sin, and we know we're supposed to deal with it, what we don't want, so it's easier to just ignore it, and sometimes easier just not to have the relationships. But it's not the right way to do it. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you've won them over. Galatians 6, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Notice, gently. And in fact, it is the loving thing to do. Some of you are sitting here listening to this and you're going, how is that Christian love to go to somebody and say you're sinning? Doesn't the Bible say judge not that you be not judged? (laughs) You guys have heard me say people in our culture may not know anything about the Bible. They know one verse. Judge not that you be not judged. The Bible is condemning in Matthew chapter 7 hypocritical judgment, not all judgment, hypocritical judgment. And it is indeed the loving thing to do. The Bible says several times, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I want you to remember that phrase. Love covers a multitude of sins. As we look at what James said in James chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over, notice, a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now the question is, how does love do that? And one way that love covers a multitude of sins is not by ignoring it, but by actually approaching it and dealing with it and turning a sinner from the error of their way and thereby covering over a multitude of sins. So how much better off would our churches be if we cared enough for each other to lovingly approach each other with the truth? If we would be proactive and and avoid further problems for the church, it would be a welcome alternative to the approach we often take, which is to just talk about it but do nothing about it. Warn the disobedient. Here's a second category of people. In verse 14, encourage the disheartened. That word for disheartened is literally short of soul. It's one who has lost heart, and so the person is fearful of what might happen. 
They're afraid to step out and try something new that has any potential for failure. They only want what's safe and risk-free. For some, our motto is nothing ventured, nothing gained. For this person, it's nothing ventured, nothing lost. If you make a proposal, they'll give you ten reasons why you can't do it. Some of you are old enough to meet. Remember the cartoon Gulliver's Travels? Remember Glum? We're doomed. We'll never make it. That's their, this person. Now, what does a fearful, timid, worrisome person need? What is their problem? The problem is they do not trust a sovereign God. And that's why it says encourage them. They need encouragement. A word that literally means to come alongside. It pictures putting your arm around the person and assuring them that it will be okay. But a Christian approach to encouragement is not just, hey, brother or sister, it will be okay. The most important thing you can offer in biblical counsel is why it will be okay. Why will it ultimately be okay? Because our God loves us and our God is in control and he knows what he's doing. And you encourage that person. You remind them of that. So you warn the disobedient. You encourage the disheartened. Thirdly, in verse 14, help the weak. It's primarily concerned with those who are weak in faith. These are people who have not learned yet to lean on the Lord as much as they should for their spiritual needs. And until they do, they need strong support from other believers. But it can also include those who are weak or feeble physically or materially. And so whether a brother or sister is deficient of faith or health or food, our responsibility is to help. It means to support them. And then finally, there is this fourth category, or more likely just a general admonition. End of verse 14, be patient with everyone. As I said, some understand that to be a fourth category of person or situation. You have the idle, you have the the timid, the fearful, uh, and then you have the, the weak, and now you have the wearisome. This would be a person who constantly has issues. They fall down again and again and they need help over and over. It may be. But as indicated in the NIV, the translation most of you have, it's a general command for how we handle all sorts of people. The idle and disruptive, uh, the timid, disheartened, the weak. All of these require that we be patient. That word patient is a word sometimes translated long-suffering, suffering long with people in different categories, in different situations. Now, if you say to yourself, hey, I'm not, that's, but don't sign me up for that. That whole long suffer, suffer long, be patient with people. I can't deal with people, yikes. When we say amen, I'm out of here. I'll show up next week, but I'll be out of here again because the whole people thing. Suffering long with with people. But here's the thing, guys and gals. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is most often called the, the love chapter because it deals with all about what love is. And as verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13 starts its definition of love, do you remember how it starts? Love is patient. This word. So if you say, I can't be patient with people, here's what you're saying. I don't love people. And Jesus said, what are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is not optional. 
to be long-suffering with people, to be patient with people. We have to do that if we're going to, if we're going to love people. And so love is patient. And how patient, I remind you, is God with you? How patient is God with me? I mean, the disciples wanted to know. They're like, look, this long-suffering thing, all this love stuff you're talking about, Jesus, is a bit much, don't you think? How many times do you want me to forgive somebody? How many times do you want me to come back to somebody? Seven times? Remember what Jesus said? No, 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 70 times seven. And can't you see the disciples going, you know, I can do the math, that's 490. Okay, as soon as you hit 491, you're out of here. But of course, that wasn't Jesus' point, was it? And so we are patient with people. We minister to certain types of people. Lastly, we minister to all types of people. Verse 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That means we do not respond in kind. Romans chapter 12 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not respond in kind, but respond in kindness. Do not respond in kind, but respond in kindness. Why? Because it reflects the God we claim to follow. How so? Luke 6, Jesus said, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. By the way, who would that be? That would be you and me. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. The way in which we were saved, the way in which we came to Christ, the way we were won over to him is because Titus 3 says when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Remember I mentioned that love chapter, love is patient. And then what's the next characteristic? Love is patient, love is kind. So here's your take-home truth. Every Christian has the privilege of being a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us this time in your word. Us, this time in your word. We, together, your people, your congregation, So, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for forming Community Bible Church. This is a body that you have formed and you have brought this group of people from their disparate backgrounds. With all of our different baggage and all of our different experiences, you have sovereignly brought us together to show your character in our interactions with one another. So, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be people who display love because you are love. We love because you have first loved us. And then help us to think about what does that look like? It means we're patient and we're kind. And it always trusts and it always believes and it never keeps a record of of wrongs. Lord, it gets to know one another so that we can love one another. So as a result of this, Father, I ask you to help me, help each of us, to make the changes in our lives and in our relational lives with one another that's necessary in order to obey what you've said here. And as a result of that, may every person who comes among us see a quality of relationship that is rooted in the love of our God and the love of Christ. 
As a result of how they see us interacting with one another, may they see what it is, know who it is that makes us tick, the Lord Jesus. And may his name be praised. We pray in his name. Amen.